0: I think, I've read this year. Oh, thank you so much. It made me feel very, very, very peculiar. Oh, thank you. (laughs) One of the questions I want to ask is, do you feel like a novelist?
1: No, and I really don't... I don't think I would ever call myself that. You know, I mean, I think there's certain people who have have made themselves professional authors, and it's just not something I don't think think I'm going to do. I do think that fiction writers should have jobs for a variety of reasons, you know. I, I think it never you know, this book and my next book, which is very long and very sort of unsellable, which I was lucky that both <laughs> Doubleday and Robbie bought at Atlantic. But um, if you do have a job and you're not living off advances and living off of grants, you never have to make concessions in your writing ever. That's really I mean, that's interesting. the first thing. And the second thing is that when you have a job, it keeps you from being slightly less self-absorbed, which I think is, you know, the writer's great curse and inevitability. And it also gives you constant fodder and material. You know, you can you know glean things from your coworkers' lives. So I don't think of myself as a novelist. Um, I think it is something very private, which is um, which is good. You know, as an editor and as a writer, as a service writer for work, you know, you make compromises constantly, and it's fine because it's like making making widgets, good widgets. But you know, but it's in the service of the reader. When you write a novel, you never have to be in service of the reader. You know, my only concern with the books is that the world that's created be as logical and complete and whole as possible. But with this book and my second book, both of my editors had asked me about the reader's comfort level. But that's not something I'm really interested in. And I think it's very difficult. You know, publishing's a business, and I completely understand it. It's something they have to think about as well. They have to think about... It's merchandise, and they have to think about moving it. But when you do... Don't have to depend upon writing as your identity or for your income. You can do whatever you want.
0: I think you've worked in publishing as a... As and an I know assistant. that publishing, as you say, is a, yeah. is a business, and but it does feel a particular... Publishers feel more than usually anxious about the bottom line and perhaps in producing kinds of books that are going to sell or fit particular template.
1: I, I do think that, you know, my agent certainly my editors say that book publishing has never been more conservative than, than at this moment. I think probably every publisher at every age has thought that. <laughs> but I do think that, you know, before... If you were a fiction writer, you had sort of three strikes, you know, you could have three chances. And if you really didn't sell anything, then you might not have another book. But nowadays, I think, you really have one chance. And you've got to either make a splash critically or you have to sell something. And There has to be something. Because I don't think that there's as many chances, which is really sad. I think that publishers like to say they're buying an author, not that they're buying a book. But I think it's very hard to buy an author these days. Um, and, And I understand that. It's... There's a fixed number of readers in the world. I don't think. I think you know. It's not like watching HBO or watching one good show might make you a TV watcher. Reading one good book, book is probably not going to make you a book reader. And I think that publishing keeps thinking that that you know, because people like to say, you know, Dan Brown will convert them into becoming readers, and that's, I don't think, not the case, It'll convert them into becoming Dan Brown readers, Um, but I think no more than that. So it is a very big problem that they have um, in the book publishing industry right now, which is a long way of saying, I do think it's more conservative, but I think this book would have had trouble no matter what. If it had been published 20 years ago, I think it still would have had trouble, so...
0: And it had a lot. Am I right in thinking it had quite a long, right, quite, and I say quite a long. That's perhaps the, the understatement of this. Interview. Actually, probably not the only understatement of this. interview, a long gestation period that you've it been did, writing.
1: It did. It did. I started it in 1996, and I finished it, I guess, in 2010 or so. So the actual writing of it took about 15 years, okay. and then the publishing of it took a little bit longer. So I've been living with it for a very long time.
0: Now, um, why is it, are there perhaps various ways to explain why a book might take that long? It was just
1: laziness. It really okay. was. I mean, there was nothing more interesting. I hate saying it took so long because people think it's going to be a masterpiece, but it's not. It just took a very long time. And one of the nice things about publishing when you're a little older is that, A, part of it is sort of the authorial identity problem. You don't... Have to hinge your entire identity upon something you've written. But the second thing is, I think the writing itself becomes much more relaxed. You know, when I look at the older drafts I had of this book from when I was 21 and working on it, they're so. um, I can see the strain of trying to sound like an old man and and the amount of effort and sweat that went into trying to make my voice sound old. And as you get older yourself, you just stop worrying as much about that because oldness is no longer another country. Or another identity. It's just something that you fall into before you know it. And so I do. I do think that the voice became more relaxed and less sort of baroque as I, as it went through various iterations. As I and there's a
0: moment it. in the novel where Norton, very self-consciously, says, "Actually, when I look back at, at, at the beginning of my career," and it's a novel very much about time. But he, he he has that moment where he sees a younger version of himself. Is, right. there, is there a little bit? Of, was there a bit of that with you now, thinking back to when when you started that?
1: To some extent, but not that much, okay. because I wrote in such scattered bits and pieces, it, it's, it wasn't like I could easily look back and say that I can read a chapter and think, I remember what I was thinking right. or doing or being and who I was becoming when I wrote this or this or this. So it's, it's nice in that way, because I think if it was that, it would be repressive in a lot of ways.
0: The most boring question any author gets asked is, "Where do you get your ideas from?" But, but it just, I do feel with this book, I'm excused that question. Right. The novel that is partly about immortality—how right. do we describe it? I mean, rape as, as a form right. of uh, social ritual. Turtles as the, as perhaps the, the means of that immortality. One of the most sort of elliptical relationships between a, 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 an author and a reader, and yeah,
1: well. The, the, you know, the character of Parana is based on a real-life man um, named, I don't know if you know that much about Carlton a, a little bit. So he was, um, you know, I mean, his, his story is more extraordinary than Parana's in all of ways. So he was a young doctor in the 1950s who went to Papua New Guinea. Um, and so what was his name? Was... Godjusek. Oh,
0: Gajusek. And it's,
1: uh, it's J, uh, G-A-J-D-U-S-E-K. <laughs> so he went to Papua New Guinea to um, live and work with a tribe called the South Fore. And the South Foray have been rumored to be cannibals, and no one knows if this is actually true or not. <laughs> um, but they, the women and children had a neurodegenerative disease called kuru, or, which means the shaking in their language, and they would shake and shake and tremor until they died. And it was discovered that they got this disease by passing around, they had a ritual in which they passed around their deceased elders' brains, and it was from bits of the tissue getting caught underneath the fingernails that they infected themselves and then they died. But what Gajusek did was he realized that the virus itself was something called a slow-acting prion. And a prion is a kind of virus that can live in the body for decades before it triggers, no one knows how, and it kills the host. So it's like scrape beer and mad cow disease. Right. They're all in the same family. So he won the Nobel in 76 for this. But what he really became known for um, was adopting these children from the island. and they were, You know, the children of his guides and his, um, the trekkers and so on and so forth. And he lived in Bethesda near the National Institutes of Health, brought all these kids back with him. And over the years, some of them, I keep hoping, wonder, wonder if one of them will contact me, but none of them have, have had extraordinary lives. I mean, some of them have stayed in the States, some of them have gone back to Micronesia and have become, you know, chiefs and chieftains and so on. And some of them just got lost, taught, and so on. So in 1999, I guess, it was announced that the FBI had been conducting a sting of him maybe a year um, because several of his sons had stepped forward and said that he had molested them. So he was sentenced and he was served 18 months in a federal correctional facility. When he got out, every university in Europe offered him a job. He picked one in Norway and he died there I think in maybe 2006 or so. So the other problem was when I was writing this book he was still alive and I couldn't have published it until he died. So that was the first part. You know, my, my father worked at NIH. For years, and um, in my household, he was a hero. I mean, he if you worked in virology or immunology or medical anthropology or um, just pediatrics, he was a pediatrician by training, he really was a hero. I mean, he was sort of one of these great, colorful men of science that science doesn't really produce anymore. But you know, he was a contemporary of Richard Feynman and James Watson, they're all sort of in the same era. Gajisik himself was much more of a bon vivant than, than Parana is. You know, he loved socializing. He spoke a ton of languages, he traveled widely, you know, he was known to be very charming, he loved his whole cold court and big um, social gatherings, and people who really, really sort of adored him. And he has sort of a large generation of acolytes and former students who are at universities all over the world now. So I always knew I would write about him. He was such a good character. And when I first started writing this book, in about 97 or so, I went onto the NAMBLA website. Do you know what NAMBLA is? No, no. So NAMBLA is the North American Man-Boy Love Association. Okay. And back then, in the early days of the internet, you could just go onto the site and look it up. And they had some of his writings there from when he was in um, Papua New Guinea about just these very lovely sort of, you know, little uh, filigreed portraits of children at play. They weren't sexualized at all. They were just very clinical almost about you know, watching a boy playing in the mud and things like that, or watching girls sort of, um, you know, in their games that they played. But he was a very good observer himself and a very good writer. And my uh, father would show me that he had he has a complete set of journals, Godjusek did, very, very detailed, about 20 volumes that, he, that are stored at NIH. But I never read anything about, in them, and I never read any of the books about him, because I didn't want it to color my perception of him. I just knew I would write it and I knew I would have to make it my own. So there are two pretty good books about him. The first is Richard Rhodes' Deadly Feast, which okay. is about prions, And the second is Dan Max's The Peep, The Family That Couldn't Sleep, which is also about Prions And both of them discuss God Joseph's legacy in it, but I didn't read. I read Dan's, but I didn't read Richard Rhodes'. Okay. It's, so that was the first part. The second part is that, you know, I'm from Hawaii and I'd always wanted to write a story about colonization, and specifically the colonization of Hawai'i. But it was very difficult to do without making it seem heavy-handed, and so I wanted, so it was an easier and less sort of pedantic and shrill way to do it the story through fiction and the story of this island. But in many ways, the story of what happens to Uibu is the story of what happened to Hawai'i. And I, I don't fetishize native cultures or peoples, I don't think that they're fundamentally better, but there is a sense of loss one has the spoilage of anything and um, although it's not meant to be an environmental or ecological parable it is I guess in the nature of the world to keep having virgin land be destroyed again and again and I did want to write about that as well Um, and how we consider moral relativism in a native culture or a stone age culture versus in our own so those are the two big things that I wanted to do and I the third thing is I wanted to sort of do a riff on the tempest you know with, (laughs) with you know with and in the in the role and then the Ron character in Ariel's role and then um, Victor in the Caliban role just because it's sort of a great triangle on when in literature that always has always been one of my favorite relationships and of course if you were taught to read the Tempest as a colonial parable as I was and I think most most Americans are I don't know if you are um, then it's sort of an irresistible marriage between the story and the and
0: Crazy. Yes, I was. I went to high school there, so I went to a
1: very Anglican school that was actually fairly um, forward-thinking in the way they taught English and so on and so forth. And it was a very charged play for all of us to read, yeah. because, because the parallels are unignorable. You know, and, and the school was made up of Asians who were descendants of um, plantation workers, like my family, and Native Hawaiian kids, and white kids who were the descendants of missionaries. This is the school Obama went to as well. So it was a very sort of, um, you know, interesting mix of people that I think is, you know, Hawaii is very much like a lot of post-colonial islands. All of them feel the same. You always have that same sort of mix um, between the workers, former missionaries and and landowners, and then the natives. And so it was really difficult not to read the compass and think about Hawaii that way.
0: And are those sorts of divides and hierarchies, are they being... In any way challenged over time. I mean, now is Hawaii been. a very different place than?
1: You know, it's different. It's interesting. My, I was the first generation in my family. I'm a fourth generation American, but I'm the first generation not to work the fields in some way. My parents both did, and so wow. you know, my it was my father's generation, the people born in you know the 40s and so the 50s, who were the first to finish high school and to not have to work either. Picking pine or picking pineapple or picking sugarcane or working in the factories, as, as both of my parents did when they were young. So it made a huge leap forward after the war. Um, but, you know, again, like most sugar growing islands, it's a very colonial place and the colonial mentalities remain um, in, in ways that, you know, from the architecture to the way the government's handled to the fact that the people with money are not necessarily the people in power. <laughs> um, and it's it's I mean it's a fascinating place, but it's,
0: tr- and, it's tricky to write about. And is there a, a strangeness? I remember talking to if I have a friend in the States who was saying that when they went to Hawaii, you are sold a ca- something li- not quite like a sort of primitive idea, but there's a kind of pu- there's a pure sentimentalised vision right. of Hawaii your soul, which did sort of chime with this idea of a sort of uh, a, a paradise place. Right. that's it's obviously completely compromised. Right, right, by right. right. exactly, exactly. I
1: mean, Hawaiian culture. Is very present in Hawaii still in some form or another. It was a very beautiful and also very scary sort of culture, with, and quite brutal too. You know, it was, and and also, um, it's hard obviously to rank cultures by their social and ethical sophistication. But you know, theirs was very. I mean, it was one of the very few cultures where incest was not taboo. Where you, you know and it was incredibly punitive um, so it was you know I certainly don't look at these cultures and think that um, that they should be preserved for superiority sake but I do look at them and think they should be preserved for the diversity of cultures and our understanding of moralities around the world if that makes sense
0: yeah absolutely I mean it Part of the, the sort of attraction of this novel is the idea of finding the lost culture. And it did make me think of also, I mean, a lot of actually books I read when I was very, you know, fairly young, sort of Ryder Haggard and yeah. Conan Doyle's Lost World. See, I haven't
1: read any of those, and, okay. or, or Jules Verne or anything like that. Um,
0: but that sense of why, why do we, I mean, this is one of the questions the novel asks, but why do we chase these, this idea of purity and paradise?
1: I mean, I think that there is this sort of, human impulse to cleanse, and the more sophisticated the culture, and the more technologically advanced. Um, I mean, man is greedy to know everything, and when I think part of the way that we do that as humans, short of finding immortality, which we'll never find, is finding places that I think we feel can regenerate us, and that I think is sort of the, the lust of, of exploration.
0: And it's slightly different, is it, for for the trio that goes to the island—it's—it's—they have very different motivations. So, so talent, who did feel sort of more, sort of raffishly Conan Doyle, and perhaps more idealistic. It's very mm-hmm. different from our, from um, Norton Perina, who's who is our, our the, the filter for, for right. everything.
1: He, I think they're both curious men in different ways. Um, but you know, one of the other things I actually thought about with with Norton and going to the island is that. This is this a question of genius? And I think that so often what we think about as genius is simply the right person being in the right place under the right context at the right time. You know, and if, you know if Diane Arbus hadn't gone to Coney Island or Steve Jobs hadn't gone to Reed, would they have necessarily done what they had done? Probably not. You know, and I do think that it's so much of life is circumstances and luck. And I think Norton's going was driven by nothing more than curiosity, but great discoveries are born from curiosity. When they don't often know what they're asking and they stumble upon something that happens to be the answer and then you work backwards to find the question.
0: Can we can we talk about Norton for a bit? Uh, in some ways, he is the novel and his character and how we judge his character defines perhaps particularly how we feel about that extraordinary oh. final chapter, which I don't want to give away in, in, in any way, but he, he has a very particular way of writing and has particular strengths and limitations as a as a pro stylist right. <laughs> um, i mean he's almost an anti-writer he... he
1: wanted him to be ultimately guileless you know i think that he doesn't i don't think that he thinks that he's done anything wrong really there's a couple of times when he slips and he sort of pauses to think did i do something wrong whether in the destruction of the island or the scene with the boy in the, in the forest but in general, he really doesn't think that he has... I mean, it's, I don't want to pathologize him and say he's a narcissist, because I specifically didn't want to make him sort of diagnosable. But I do think that he is childlike in a lot of ways. He's a child sort of level of self-absorption. I mean, I always imagined he was a virgin. I imagine that his fumblings of talent and his inability to even name what it is he feels um, is sort of deeply sad in an adult who cannot even give name when he can give name to so many other things can't even give name to how he's feeling and so expresses those feelings sort of in the most horrible of ways but I also think that he I don't think he's with malice and I don't think he's malevolent I think that he simply wants certain things and so he does that and it wouldn't even occur to him to question otherwise and in that way he is very childlike that's how a toddler behaves a toddler has a need, whether it's hunger or loneliness or whatever, and in his case it's loneliness, and tries to get whatever he wants in order to fill that need. And they they don't have language for it. You know, you don't have language for these things until you're older and more sophisticated, or you hope you acquire it. And he somehow along the way never acquired that language. And he acquired a different set of language. He acquired the language of science, which is a great bomb to him, I think, in many ways, but ultimately not enough. You know, when you look at scientists in this day and age and I don't think this is true a hundred years ago, but people of science speak two languages. You know, they speak their everyday vernacular, whether it's English or French or German or whatever, and then they speak the language of science, which none of us speak. And it was interesting writing this book because, as a writer, because there's a whole other world of vocabulary and terminology and ways of writing and ways of talking and thinking that none of us have access to, and is sort of there with us, walking among us every day. But if you haven't been raised in the scientific tradition. You don't have access to it. And so it was also, I think, to some extent, about the comfort of naming things. Mm-hmm. And the evil Yuhans are very interested in naming things. They have names, you know, and that's why it was important for me to make the language. But Norton, in, he struggles with the most fundamental notions of, even in the very basic sense of what love is, what loneliness is. He's very capable of saying them. Um, and I think, in a way, his inability to name them is what makes him behave in the way he does. I thought
0: about him actually off at the end of the novel in terms of what he lacked more than in a way what he had that mm. he was a man with little in the way of perhaps what we think of as a creative imagination mm. um, no sense of humour it seems to me or, or so only perhaps a savage sense of humour yeah. and almost from the beginning that the extraordinary description of his childhood seemed to be Again, defined by almost what wasn't there. Friends, right. any close relationship. Incredibly sort of forensic, but rather pitiless description of right. both his, his parents. Right, right.
1: Um, you know, my father's a scientist, and he <laughs> he's dispassionate about a lot of things. You know, he's dispassionate about child raising, he's dispassionate about, to a certain extent, about emotions. I mean, he's sort of, I suppose, the gentler side of, of, of this sort of person. You know, I mean, I never... I, th- I think he is a very affectionate my father, but it was never something he expressed. Um, and he has sort of a very biting sense of humor himself. But um, but I think that that kind of I think many people in science do have that kind of tendency, but not just science and art as well. Um, and it's um, sometimes it gets directed well, and sometimes it doesn't. And in Norton's case, I think he is limited in many ways. Um, and you know, the life in the mind. The fetishization of intelligence, I think, in, in our culture and in every culture, helps you to some extent, but not to the entire extent.
0: Does it go back to the thing you, uh, the point you were making earlier about the idea of genius, that and we will forgive geniuses, whether it's Picasso's treatment yeah. of women or uh, Byron's yeah, treatment of everyone, because absolutely. they happen to be a very no, brilliant... No, you're
1: absolutely right, and, and I do think that that is something that I always wondered about. You know, when the real-life Gajisek, when it was announced that he was, in fact, guilty of... Molesting his children. You know, I remember that my father's affection for him and many scientists' affection for him has been dimmed, which I actually thought was right. I mean, he was he was a great man in many ways, but I do think that the way we think of the great man with a capital G, capital M, and the great man with lowercase g and m is so binary, and especially in a culture, American culture, that fetishizes achievement and accomplishment and success, and you know measurable qualities. I do think that the simple act of being a decent person is given very little weight and there's something about that as well. A different note. I, there's been a rash of these parenting books that have come out in the States, everything from Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother you but, know, to Bringing Up Bivet, and you're about to have... Is this your first child that you're having? Yes. Oh, God. So, you know, I do think, you know, American culture in particular is obsessed with achievement, whether it's raising your kid to be rich, or smart, or powerful, or athletic, or so on and so forth. But there's very little um, emphasis ever on raising a good person. And, and I do think, obviously, that's something that, you know... Good people are not interesting to write about generally, but but North's dismissal, I think, of decency as sort of a vital human virtue is, I is, I hope, sad, considering that it's decency that he seeks. You know, and talent, and that it's it's kindness that I think he is trying to find, even if he's not able to name it. This void that he wants the child to fill is, I think, loneliness in a lot of ways, and he's not ever able to identify that for himself, and so he mistakes it for something else. I think.
0: And and with him, it's that ties into his idea of science and scientific research that Mm. he almost seems indifferent to any benefits of. Of the research, and he says, "I'm actually in it for the adventure." I think is right. the word, the word he used. There are lots and lots of uh, uh, Promethean right. scientific overtones in the novel. Uh, it's, it's a time period of, of a scientist like Oppenheimer who spent, right. I suppose, the end of his life wondering what he what he, done. What he had done. I mean,
1: I, I think that's. I mean, it's a great question, and you know, there's a big difference between doctors who are clinicians and doctors who are researchers. You know, my father began his life as a researcher and was now a clinician. And researchers are... I mean, I guess the way to put it is researchers are philosophers. You know, they ask questions. The human really doesn't come into it at all. You know, you can go your entire life without ever seeing a patient. And that's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to think sort of largely and adventurously and to try to answer questions or to to try to find the question to which you found the answer. Right. You know? Whereas when you're a clinician, you're more of a priest. Your job is to make the patient comfortable. Your job is not to be, um, it, it's to be a hand holder in a way, it's to be a shepherd into death perhaps, or it's, it's, to, it's to only address the problems in front of you. And, you know, one of, and there is, they think very, very differently, these two groups of people. You know, when when you have a person who's a researcher, a professional researcher, the way they see, they get excited by a virus, and they should be, because it is something that they, the, there's a beauty and a complexity and a mystery in the virus, in a the way there's not in a person. A person is not mysterious and thrilling in the same way. And you know, I don't know when this started to change, but I have this theory that in the 1950s or so, there was a brief period in which everything became modern. You know, science became modern art became modern, writing became modern, all sort of in a very small radius in New York, you know, from sort of Manhattan up to Cold Springs. You know, you had, you know, Feynman and you had, you know, uh, Watson and Cook up in Cold Springs, you had the Beats, you know, in you know, in, in upper Manhattan, and then you had Pac Pollock and his whole crew in lower Manhattan, and all at the same time, you know, all of these sort of great bonds of what, of what these disciplines should be were being broken. And I think after that schism, really, and it was, I mean, I think that the religious terminology is perhaps correct, you did have people within each of those fields thinking very, very differently about those fields. <laughs> and certainly for my father, um, when I when I was younger, I remember asking him, and he did a lot of human experimentation, if the end always justified the means, and we have been talking about... Um, about Thornbrook, you know, which is one of the, the you know, he's mentioned in, in, in the book. And he said, yes, the men, 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 means always justify the end. The end always justify the means. Right. Him. And now, when I asked him most recently, he said no. And, you know, there's, it's, I was right finishing this book at really kind of a fascinating period in science when we really are able to do almost anything now, you know, pluripotency, we are able to recreate an entire life now. And so, really, the only thing preventing the furtherance of some sort of medical exploration is the artificial imposition of those efforts. In the States, unfortunately, we're unable to talk about that without bringing religion into business. right. But I do think it's, it's a worthy conversation. Should we be building the brakes on what we can be doing? You know, Should we be practicing a kind of slow science until we figure out what our moral and ethical... Um, reasonings or responses are going to be to some of these problems that such science will inevitably ask, And I don't think... So we're sort of at this, this odd kind of point where this could be real, you know, in, in, in the coming years. And what are we going to do? You know, what are we going to... Um, how are we going to handle that as humans? Because science is a great way of solving humankind, but it also is a way of destroying humankind as well. And I don't mean people. I mean the way we think of other people I suppose Sure
0: Science has enabled us to live longer to to be healthier longer and yet at the same time one of the consequences of that is that we're dealing with a, a generation who are dealing with Alzheimer's disease right. and dementia it's an economic problem it's, uh, it's it's a challenge for over here for the, the National Health system right. it seemed almost a sort of a uh, science sort of yeah, dilemma com- yeah.
1: completely and a philosophical one and the problem is you know we're living at a time when you said we could live longer and at the same time i've never fetishized youth more <laughs> so in a way you know the grand achievement of living long is offset by the fact that nobody wants you to be old anymore no one wants an old person around that age in itself is an enemy even though immortality itself is the goal. And, you know, I think that immortality itself has been something that every single culture in the entire world since the beginning of time has wanted. I don't know why, but, it, it, but with every single culture has. And I think it's pretty universal. There's not a single culture that everything's got. I really like to die young. But, but it is fascinating that the questions about, beyond the obvious religious ones, about why and what happens when we live long haven't really been asked by anyone except the greeks who really did ask who asked you know what would happen if you if you live long and how age intersects with beauty and how age intersects with our sense of helplessness but it's something that we haven't really explored i think in great depth and detail
0: what what attracted you personally to it was it was it was it a sense of what's going on now was it is that were you interested in in, in that tradition of uh uh of immortality or or certainly physical beauty as as, as.
1: not much you know I mean Norton's an unattractive character he sort of delights in it but also bemoans it Um, I mean I'm not particularly interested in old age myself it's not something I really want to achieve it's not something (laughs) that I I don't really fear death but um, and I attribute that to my parents who really are very sort of sanguine about death I I even it's not something they worry about but um but I do think that, you know, and it's not something I worry about in terms of my writing either. I don't think about my legacy. I don't...
0: So you're not yeah, literally in time? No, you're so okay. I, don't,
1: I don't really care. But, but I, I do think that in terms of the obsession with age and youth just happened to dovetail with the book as I was writing it. But it wasn't something that was of great interest to me personally.